Job chapter 42, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Napathite went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job, and the Lord restored Job's losses. When he prayed for his friends, indeed the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yokes of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first, Jemima. The name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Kareen Hapush. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. We come to the end of the book, and remember, Job has been tested in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job despairs in chapter 3. Job's been counseled from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 41. Job is approved in chapter 42. Remember, Satan has challenged Job, and there has been a series of words without knowledge in chapter 38, verse 2, that have been offered. The book deals with the problem of pain and suffering. And many answers are provided by Job's counselors. They have a whole lot to say 
Some of it even sounds right, but all of it winds up being deficient. Ryrie's note is very helpful at this point. He writes, Job repents of his pride and rebellion and finds contentment in the knowledge that he has God's fellowship. This is the great lesson of the book. If we know God, we do not need to know why he allows us to experience what we do. He's not only in control of the universe and its facets, but also of our lives. And he loves us, though his ways are sometimes beyond our comprehension. We should not criticize him for his dealings with us or with others. God is always in control of all things, even when he appears not to be, unquote. And if the lesson of Job is an exploration and a desire to know the reason for suffering. When we come to the end of the book, we come up empty-handed because a reason is never given. Instead of a reason, a relationship is established. And Job experiences the favor of God, the presence of God, the revelation of God, the companionship and friendship of God. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Job answered and the Lord said, and answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. Remember, this is based on chapter 38, chapter 39, chapter 40, chapter 41. Job has basically said, You've convinced me. You have control over creation. You have control over the creatures. I know that you can do everything and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Think about that insight just for a moment. If you just simply believe that, if you didn't understand a whole lot, but you understand that once God purposes in his heart to do something, that he is able to do it. And then you ask and answer the question, what does God purpose in his heart? Has God purposed in his heart to love you? And forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you. Has God purposed in his heart that he's going to order and orchestrate all of reality so that you could come to a place of both submission to him and admission that he's the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? He says, no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting the Lord. He's repeating the words of the Lord. As he repeats the words of the Lord, he's basically saying, you said, who is this who's talking about something that he has no idea what he's talking about? And by the way, when you repeat what God says, the chances are you're going to be in good shape. If you just simply say, look, I don't know everything about everything, but I'm going to repeat what you had to say The chances are things are going to turn out okay. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The whole point, he repeats the testimony of God in its context. And you see, for the person who says, talk to me, but don't talk to me about what God has to say, the chances are you're limiting your ability to actually interact with them in a way that's going to result in change. Job admits that his words were wrong. And that's always a good start. If you ever have a conversation and it goes something like this, 
I admit that what I said was wrong. And I also admit that what God says is right. You're on the road to restoration. You're on the road to healing. You're on the road for everything to turn out okay. In verse 4 it says, listen please and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. In other words, I had an understanding. People in the past had revealed things about you. Creation in my own conscience spoke concerning who you may or may not be. He says, but I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Did Job actually see God? I think that the answer is no in this sense. The revelation and the conversation are real. But the Bible's repeated testimony is that no one has seen God at any time. In the Gospel of John, it says no one has seen God at any time. But Jesus, who was in the bosom of the Father from the beginning, has revealed him. And so how are we to think about what we're reading? Well, Job has experienced God's true revelation. Job has seen God's wisdom and God's power and God's glory and God's sovereignty and God's majesty. And the reason why all of this becomes important because when Jesus responds to Thomas in John chapter 14 when he says, Thomas says, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you and you've not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when people ask and answer the question, have you ever seen God? And if you've ever seen God act in love and act in grace and act in mercy and act in compassion and act... In generosity, you've seen him. You've seen him. You've repeatedly seen him work in your life. And if you've read the Bible and you've actually come into a right relationship with God in Christ, you begin to understand what the Bible says about God. And God is revealed in his majesty, but he's also revealed in his purity and his holiness. And if you begin to understand the majesty and the purity and the holiness of God, you begin to understand about your own sinful circumstances. Remember in the New Testament when when Jesus rebuked the winds and Peter said, depart from me because I'm a sinner. The overwhelming purity and goodness and grace and mercy of Jesus caused Peter to come to a place where he understood his own wickedness and his own sinfulness. And that's why he says in verse 6, Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You may not completely understand what that means, so let me maybe add just a few things. When he says, therefore, I abhor myself, the word abhor means to reject in the strongest possible terms. It means to reject and recant. Part of the point that is being made is Job repents of his words and accusations that were based, listen carefully, 
on the false belief that God always rewards the righteous in this life. In, in other words, when he says, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, does that mean that everything that Job ever did was wrong? No, that's not what that means. Does it mean that when he prayed to God, loved God, and submitted to God, and prayed for his children, and worshipped the Lord, and all of the things that caused God in the very beginning of the book to say, have you considered my servant Job? That there's no one like him in all of the earth? What Job is repenting of in the strongest possible terms is the false belief that God always rewards the righteous in this life. Job can't accuse God of injustice, but rather submits to the sovereign will of the Lord of the universe. And so he comes to that point where he's admitting, he's saying, it was ridiculous of me to in any way impugn that whatever plans and purposes that you have for me could have been anything other than correct. And we might theologically look at that particular passage and think, well, that's interesting. But it's very, very difficult to apply it to your own life. Particularly if you've ever said, Lord, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you allow that person to come into my life and make it miserable? Lord, why did you allow that person to leave and make my life miserable? Isn't that funny how one person can be a joy and another person can be, well, less than a joy? One of the things as you look at verse 6 and you read, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Can we really abhor ourselves if we have a wrong view of God? I don't think that's possible. In other words, in order to really understand the critical nature of the problem of sin in our lives, number one, you have to have a right view of God. The second thing that you have to have is a right view of sin. And so if you have a wrong view of sin, you can't abhor yourself. In other words, if you have a wrong view of sin, you might think, I'm basically a good person. I'm basically a nice person. I'm not like an ISIS terrorist who cuts journalists' heads off. I I mean, by and large, I may say a few bad things, and I may be a little bit selfish, and I may be this, and I may be that, but I'm basically a good person. And and guess what? You, you, You begin to misunderstand part of the point of the passage. You can't understand the majesty, the glory, and the holiness of God. You can't understand the significance of sin. Someone has said the best way to know God's estimate of sin is to realize the tremendous price that it took to atone for sin. The death of Jesus on the cross. Anything less than that becomes insufficient. Anything less than that becomes insufficient because... Now, all of a sudden, we understand that God's estimation of sin is that it is such a profound problem. It is such a horrible difficulty. It is such what would seem like an insurmountable barrier that God is going to have to send his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and to die on a cross. And if you've ever wondered just how serious God takes your sin. All you have to do is just look at the cross. And so we have to consider our own pride. 
in our own rebellion. Job's suffering wasn't a direct result of personal sin. The Lord testified, like I said, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Job's suffering wasn't a direct result of personal sin, and yet the trials, the pain, the pressure, and then the interrogation revealed something else. Pride, self-justification, animosity. You see, that's sometimes what will happen when we have trials and difficulties and pain. You probably heard the expression that when you put the squeeze on someone, that sometimes what's really inside of them will come out. You squeeze. In the New Testament, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. McDonald said, quote, He was not delivered until he had a vision of his own nothingness and of God's greatness. And until he prayed for his friends. And I think that this is really, really interesting. Because the road to restoration was a road of revelation that basically said, I'm nothing. The Lord is everything. And I'm going to pray for these people who were so mean to me. And so when it says he repents. Remember repentance always involves three things. Number one. A change of mind. That, that means we want to do what is good instead of wishing to do evil. And so... Again, if, if we come to a place where we go, I, when the Bible urges you to repent or when there's an invitation to repent, it means a willingness to change your mind, to, to go in a different direction, to do what is good instead of evil. And then number two, it involves a change of heart. We seek to love what the Lord loves and then we begin to hate what the, the Lord hates. And so one of the, the, the indicators that, that things are starting to become different is because you change your mind about the circumstance you change your heart about the circumstance which leads to the third thing which is a change of life which demonstrates that our repentance is true and real and imagine imagine you meet someone and they've changed their mind about the circumstance and they've changed their heart about the circumstances but their life hasn't changed they may say that 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 they want to be different that they've changed their mind, that, that sin has caused them to change their mind and that they're going to go in a different direction. But remember, sin forsaken is the surest sign of sin forgiven. And so when a person says, I believe that the Bible is true and I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that salvation is real and their life is no different, then I think that that's something, that's an indication that something has gone wrong. But Job has changed his mind. And he has changed his heart. And now everything in his life is going to be different. Look at verse 7 and says, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job. 
that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite. And you might be wondering, well, why didn't he talk to everybody? It could very well be that he begins with Eliphaz because apparently he is the oldest in the group and is therefore the most responsible for his wickedness and his inconsistency and his failure in his misrepresentation of God. And this should be a little bit of a warning to each and every one of us. If you're the oldest person in the room, then the chances are it's going to come down on you. Not your kids, you. He says, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken what is right, (laughs) as my servant Job has. Now imagine the Lord shows up to you and says, You know what? I think you missed the boat here. I think you got it wrong. Now remember, When he says, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Pause for just a moment. Did Eliphaz and the others say many things that were right? Yeah. Did they say a few things that were wrong? Yeah. What did all three have in common that they got wrong? That God rewards the righteous and punishes the unrighteous. And therefore, Job is unrighteous because he's being punished. The friends were guilty of misrepresenting God. Now I want you to pause for a moment because apparently the Lord thinks that this is a fairly significant issue. If you are guilty about lying about God or misrepresenting God, again, does that mean everything that a person says is utterly untrue? No. At the heart of their misrepresentation, again, is their insistence that all suffering is a punishment for sin, and therefore they're insistent that Job was being punished for sin, and that therefore Job was a sinner and worthy of all of these difficulties. This should cause, again, each and every one of us to go, whatever is going on, in whatever conversation that I'm having, as I begin to talk about the nature of God or the attributes of God or what God has revealed about himself or what God says about who he is and what he thinks and and how he saves people, that we owe it, not just to the Lord. If that were the only person we owed it to, it would be worth it. But we owe it, we owe it, we owe it to the Lord not to misrepresent him. And the only chance that you will ever have of literally not misrepresenting the Lord is by saying what the Bible says about God. I learned a long time ago a couple of principles. Say what the Bible says about God. Don't say what the Bible doesn't say about God. If the Bible speaks to an issue, speak to the issue. If the Bible is silent about an issue, chances are maybe I should be silent about the issue. And not make up stuff. 
And so in verse 8, the Lord says, now, and notice what, 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 what he says. <laughs> My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. Pause for a moment. Does that shock you? Does it shock you that God is angry with Eliphaz and the two friends for misrepresenting him? No one's shocked by that? Good. That's a good thing. That, that means you've been listening to this. This is good news. And that's why it becomes an important point. Not that we have to be angry and mad at everybody who misrepresents God. But what we can say is, hey, I, I think that the Lord's probably not good if you misrepresent him. And, and one of the reasons why we know that is just think about yourself for just a moment. Do you like it or dislike it when someone misrepresents you? They say that you believe something when in fact you don't believe it. Or they say that you affirm something when in fact you don't affirm it. And so in verse 8 it says, Now therefore take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. Listen carefully. In this process of making things right, the Lord commands them to offer a sacrifice and to go to Job. And, and, and look what it says. And my servant Job shall pray for you. Can you read this text and in any way pretend that the Lord is commanding them to take seven bulls and seven rams in, and offer the sacrifice to Job. Are they offering the sacrifice to Job? What do you think? They're not offering the sacrifice to Job. They're offering the sacrifice to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has been offended. But then they also have to go to Job. Why? Because Job has been offended. And he says, look what he says, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So what do we know? Lord's angry with Job's friends. The Lord's angry because they neglected to tell the truth about God in verse 7. The Lord insists on a sacrifice in verse 8, an offering in order for the friends to be reconciled to Job. They need to be reconciled to Job. And what's interesting is the Lord says, and oh, by the way, I'll accept Job. The implication is that if the friends are reconciled to God or to Job, God will hear and accept Job's prayers on their behalf. And the Lord warns Eliphaz to make the offering, lest I deal with you according to your folly. By the way, if you don't understand what the word folly means, it's the exact opposite of the word wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, the, the book of Proverbs invites you to act with wisdom. And it discourages you from acting with folly. Folly are all of the things that you come up with that 
are inconsistent with the character of God, the nature of God, the word of God, and the revelation of God. Folly in the Bible is when that's something you just made up. (laughs) So, on what basis would God deal with Eliphaz? Think for just a moment. God is going to deal with Eliphaz on the basis of sacrifice and intercession, or he's going to deal with Eliphaz on the basis of misrepresentation and folly. The reason why, again, this becomes important to you is, guess what? You are going to appear before God on one of two bases. On the basis of what you've said about God or not said, the representation you've made or failed to make, or on the basis of sacrifice and intercession. Which do you think you would like to go with? Because if you go with it on the basis of sacrifice and intercession, and if you go with it on the basis of, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, I'm wondering who the Lord would be willing to find acceptable in this situation, I'm going to suggest to you that it's at this point that Job becomes like a type of Jesus, where he suffered. But he's also going to make intercession. Over and over again in our studies, I've tried to tell you three things. That salvation is always by blood. Remember in Hebrews 9.22, which we're going to be studying. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The blood must always be innocent. It must always be shed. It must always be applied. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 it says, And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him who loved us and washes us from our sins in his own blood. Salvation is always by a person. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, we read, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. In Acts 4.12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. And so salvation is always by blood. It's always by a person. It's always by grace. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. And then something happens. Grace is always followed by peace. And one of the interesting things in the passage is the Lord refers to Job not once, Not twice, not three times, but four times in that passage. As my servant, my servant, my servant. Wiersbe asks this interesting question. How did Job serve God? How did he do that? How did Job serve God? Wiersbe writes, By enduring suffering and not cursing God 
and thereby silencing the devil. Suffering in the will of God is a ministry that God gives to a chosen few, unquote. I know what most of you are thinking. Lord, I'm prepared to have a ministry, but maybe not that one. Happy to have a ministry. Could I serve you in another way? Hand out bulletins, maybe. Help around the church. Participate on the worship team. Maybe be a part of the children's ministry. Most people don't volunteer for the ministry of, hey, Lord, bring it on. Bring on the pain and bring on the suffering and bring on the difficulties so that people will look at me and wonder how a Christian holds up under difficult circumstances. How is Job God's servant? Remember what we've learned in this whole book. Remember how it begins in that invisible stateroom called heaven. And how you learn that there's an invisible war taking place all around you. How there are angels and demons and that there's an invisible battle that's taking place for your heart and your soul and your family. And that it isn't just about the circumstances that you're facing, but your whole life becomes a staging ground and a proving ground to determine whether or not what God says about you is true. In verse 9 it says, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite, remember that's why he's the smallest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite, because that's, no, okay, we'll, we'll move on. And Zophar the Namathite, They went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord accepted Job. To me, this is one of the most heart, one of those joyous of heart verses in all of the Bible. Look what it says again. The friends did as the Lord commanded them. The reason why this becomes such a powerful statement is think about all the times in the Bible where the Lord asks people to do something and there's usually one of two responses. Yes and no. By the way, in the Bible when people respond in the affirmative to God, when the Lord says, repent, turn to me, forsake sin, embrace me, Come to me, confess your sin. I'll forgive you, I'll wash you, I'll cleanse you. And people go, okay. And then other people go, no way. What happens to the no way people? They are just simply postponing judgment. And so when it says the friends did as the Lord commanded them, and again, few words are more powerful than For the Lord, for the Lord had accepted Job. And by the way, when it says that the Lord had accepted Job, it appears that that means that the Lord accepted that he was going to be willing to listen to Job. Do you suppose Job said, 
Heavenly Father, I pray that Eliphaz, Bildad, and uh, Zophar rot in hell. They were so mean to me. I hope that you break their eyes. I hope they just get a tiny, tiny taste of what I've gone through. Or do you think he prayed, Heavenly Father, when I consider how wrong I was and how gracious you've been, I was wondering if in your grace and your mercy and your love and your sweetness that you would extend the same kindness to them and the same mercies to them and the same grace to them. And has it ever occurred to you that that's exactly what Jesus prays for you, that, he, that you would experience grace and mercy and peace and that God accepts Jesus' prayer? We live in a world where sometimes people don't accept us. I don't know if you've ever had an unkind word said about you or a criticism made about you. And it hurt you. And you had to literally stop and you had to say, but I'm chosen in Christ, I'm adopted. And I'm accepted in the beloved, even though my mom and my dad or my brother and my sister or my boss or co-worker, um, even though my neighbor or, or a particular group of people may not accept me, I'm accepted in Christ. And it's interesting because it says in verse 10, and the Lord restored Job's losses, note, when he prayed for his friends. That part of the restoration process that began to take place wasn't just the recognition of the repentance on the part of Job, but it was also when he began to pray for his friends and now all of a sudden healing, wholeness, wellness begins to take place in his life. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job is the Lord's servant, and now he serves in the role of intercessor. And again, what a privilege. But Job's intercession, again, must have had some difficulties, because after all, Job's friends weren't always the kindest people. But in spite of all that, Job prays, and the Lord restores the losses. By the way, from this passage, can we then assume That everyone who experiences physical, financial difficulty, that things are going to always return to the way they were before. No, we can't draw that conclusion. Not always. But here's what we can conclude. That repentance and intercession... Reconciliation, the establishment of fellowship, always means that something good's about to happen. And by the way, fellowship and relationship with God is more important than family and health and wealth and inheritance. So, what might experience, or we might experience some restoration, we might experience some sort of reward. But again, The truth, the reward may not come immediately. 
and it may not even come in this life. Wearsby writes, quote, The secret of Job's life was endurance. That's what it says in James 5.11 when it talks about the patience of Job. He trusted God in spite of Satan, in spite of circumstances, in spite of friends and loved ones. His faith at times wavered and sometimes he accused God, but he still endured as seeing him who is invisible, unquote. And then, of course, in verse 11, it says, Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. Oh, you know what that means? That means he's out of the trash heap. His brothers, his sisters, and those who had been his acquaintance, they come to him. They eat food with him. They console him. They comfort him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a ring of gold. In the ancient world, when there was a particularly joyous occasion, they would celebrate often with the giving of gifts. And so this could be what is known in the ancient world as a restoration fund. So they give him a piece of silver. They give him a piece of gold. I'm going to suggest to you that with the piece of silver and with the piece of gold, he buys a cow. He buys a camel. He buys a donkey. He buys another cow. He buys another camel. He buys another donkey. They mate. They produce offspring. That offspring produces offspring. Pretty soon, all of a sudden, things are are starting to happen once again. And in verse 12, it says, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And remember, this is a culture and a society that gauges wealth in terms of reproductive assets. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And again, the astute Bible student will go, hey, wait, I thought he got twice as much. How come he didn't get 14 sons and and six daughters? If he lost 10 in the beginning, why doesn't he get 20 in the end? The reason, because the first 10 aren't lost. They're in heaven. He doesn't have 10 kids. He has 20 kids. 10 in heaven? Ten on the earth. By the way, when someone you love dies and they love the Lord, are they lost? It's wrong to call something lost when in fact it's not lost. I think that that's what this means. Job's family doubles in size. Again, should we think that Job's restoration is is based on some kind of compensation owed uh, to Job by by God. For some, do you think that there's someone in heaven going? Well, due to the fact of Job's pain and suffering, we are going to now uh, uh, give punitive damages to Job for lost time and lost wages. That's not what's happening here. I want you to think carefully for just a moment. Is The restoration of Job, something Job earned, or is it the free gift of God? That's the right answer. You guys have come a long way, baby. (laughs) The restoration is the free gift of God. Does the fear of the Lord and obedience to him often result in blessing and benefit and abundance? The answer is yes. 
But this is freedom. And it says, and he called the name of his first Jemima, not the syrup. Do you remember that? And Jemima's pancakes without the syrup is like the spring without the fall. There's only one thing worse in this universe. And that's no Aunt Jemima at all. But let me just tell you what it means real quick. Jemima means dove. And Keziah or Cassia means cinnamon. And Kareen Hapush means, it's hard to translate it, but, but it means like a box of, of eye paint or a cosmetic box. When I read Kareen Hapush, I think of the old commercial that says, Maybelline means beautiful eyes. But that's part of the point. The, the, the point is dove and cinnamon and a box of eye paint. <laughs> these are all words that describe beauty and, and honor. In other words, these girls are like, take your breath away, beautiful. And why is that important? Because remember, Job has been on an ash heap. He has been horribly disfigured by a disease. How is it possible that you can have such Deep difficulties, profound sorrows, and, and life scars, and then God in his grace and his mercy gives you beautiful children, or beautiful grandchildren. And it, it speaks of this, again, powerful, powerful restoration. It says, in all the land there, there were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job and their father, gave them an inheritance among their brothers. The reason why the scripture points this out is because it was highly unusual to give daughters an inheritance. Daughters normally only got an inheritance if under the most difficult of circumstances, moms and dads weren't able to have male heirs who could acquire the property and and then take um, the, the, the property and the possessions into the future. But Job provides for all of them. And then it says, after this, Job lived 140 years. Some scholars look at that and and they think, because people have asked me too. They they said, how old do you think Job was when we started Job chapter 1 and chapter 2? When the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth? How old was he? And a lot of scholars think that he was probably 70 years old when all of this went down. And that God in his grace and his mercy gives him another 70 years so that he lives to be 140 years. If the double formula applies also to Job's age, that may be. But whatever the truth is, verse 17 is so Job died old and full of years. And that's an idiomatic expression which is used of God's choice saints. It's a word that would later be used to describe Abraham as he's old and full of years. Isaac, old and full of years. Jacob, old and full of years. I'm coming up to that place where I'm edging towards old and full of years. But I try to tell people, don't let my youthful appearance fool you. I'm somebody's grandpa. Job maintains his integrity. He doesn't curse God. And because he lives 70 more years, or at least to 140 years old, do you think he's healed of this horrible disease? 
It sounds like it. Is the mystery of suffering solved? No. But the Bible teaches that the believer should expect suffering in John 15. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. Yet, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant isn't greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So what are the great lessons we learn from the book of Job? Think carefully for just a moment. The Lord offers himself, not an explanation, for all of Job's questions. Imagine just for a moment where you go, God, I want to know this. And the Lord says, I know you really, really want the answer. But I'm going to give you something better than the answer. I'm going to be the answer. I'm going to show up and be the reoccurring answer to life's most difficult questions. The righteous can and do sometimes suffer. Suffering isn't always a result of personal sin. God sets a protective hedge around the righteous. God doesn't send sickness and suffering. It comes from Satan in Job chapter 1 and 2. And we can see that in Luke chapter 13 again. Sometimes suffering comes from misguided friends. Sometimes it comes from ungodly human beings. We live in a broken world. And sometimes in that broken world, we experience hurt and suffering. Satan has some control in the realm of the fallen world and fallen people. You'll remember that Satan used the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to pillage and loot and destroy property. Satan used supernatural disasters from heaven, weather, a great wind, sickness, boils on Job, and death. Satan can only bring even those things. Through the permission of God. And so some people think, well, what God permits, well, that's what he does. But remember what the book of Job says. Shall we accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? Why are you so willing to have all of the blessings but none of the difficulties? And so if if this book teaches us anything, it should teach us If I have Jesus, then I'm willing to take what Jesus had to take. If he was misunderstood, and part of the price of what it means to be a Christian means misunderstood, I can live with that. Persecution, I can live with that. Pain, I can live with that. Rejection, I can live with that. Again, God doesn't always give the reason for suffering. But if, we, if I were to give some quick reasons from other parts of the passages, suffering develops patience, and suffering develops endurance, and suffering servants often generate sympathy, compassion, and humility. When you suffer, sometimes you come to a place where now you become qualified to help other people in their suffering. By the way, Did Job's patience prove that Satan was a false accuser and a liar? By the way, did Jesus' ministry in the New Testament prove that Satan was a false accuser and a liar? And does your ministry reflect the fact that Satan is a false accuser and a liar? 
You mean that the Lord might actually allow something really difficult to happen just to make the devil shut his mouth? Apparently. Satan isn't all-powerful, and he isn't all-present, and he isn't all-knowing. But for whatever reason, God will use you to prove to people watching you that the Bible is true. One other thing. Sometimes God can use suffering to give us insight into God's nature and sometimes to drive us to intimacy with him and sometimes to prepare us for greater ministry and sometimes to prepare us for a future kingdom, sometimes to show God's sovereignty. But whatever the reason, whatever the reason, honor the Lord. Realize that other people suffer. Don't faint. Endure. Thank God for your suffering, but don't suffer needlessly. And if I'm going to close with one final comment, it's the advice that Paul gives. Remember in Romans chapter 8, he said, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Paul doesn't just simply provide an explanation for suffering. He said, for whatever the reason, and however long it lasts, it's nothing compared to the glory which will be revealed in us when Jesus resurrects you, glorifies you, And then you become his constant companion throughout eternity. Because one day, one day, if the Lord tarries, it could very well be that you will die. And I pray that you will be old (laughs) and full of days, having lived a glorious life for Jesus. And that, my friends, concludes the book of Job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Again, Lord, if we can grow and learn, if we can show sensitivity and compassion for people in pain, If we could become more like Jesus after reading this book, it will have been time well spent. But again, Father, I pray that the lessons learned and the principles gleaned would serve us in in our future ministries, knowing that there will be people in pain and there will be people in trouble and they're going to want a kind word and a sensitive and a comfortable and compassionate support. Lord, we pray that we could do those things and that we could point people to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.